This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. If we choose to deal with hate speech with legal sanction, it can empower the very groups whose speech the sanction was meant to punish. And restrictions on speech can also punish those attempting to speak out against odious ideas. In her new book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, Nadine Strawson says responding to so-called hate speech demands more speech, free speech, counter speech. You refer to constitutionally protected hate speech, which is, uh, a, I, th- I believe you said, a narrower category than hate speech. Can you help us draw, a, draw those lines about what, what falls on one side or the other? Absolutely. And the key difference is content versus context. The U.S. Supreme Court has consistently said that we are not going to punish any speech merely because its content, its message, its viewpoint, its idea is hateful or hated. To the contrary, uh, the Supreme Court has consistently enforced what it calls the principle of viewpoint neutrality. We will never allow speech to be suppressed merely because the majority of the community dislikes, even hates its content. However, speech that conveys a hateful message along with speech with any other content may be punished if in a particular context that speech directly causes imminent, serious, specific harm, such as a genuine threat, which reasonably puts somebody in fear of being attacked, such as an imminent incitement to violence, which is likely to happen imminently and is intentionally conveyed. Another example would be targeted harassment. So you try to draw a couple of uh, lines here in this book, and I think uh, it's extremely helpful to have these lines drawn because uh, most people don't have a clear idea about what is protected by the Constitution, what isn't. And further, you're trying to sort of say, we don't have to like the these words that we hear or even these groups of people who are espousing uh, words or ideas that we find abhorrent. We need to tolerate them as a constitutional matter, but we need to resist uh, them as we can using our own rights. So can you help me understand this distinction between tolerating something as a constitutional matter and resisting it uh, as a social matter? The United States Supreme Court has consistently said, starting in the mid-20th century when it began to strongly protect freedom of speech, even for hateful and hated ideas, the court has consistently said, you know, unless the speech satisfies that appropriately demanding standard of directly causing imminent, specific, serious harm, the way to respond to speech that you think is bad, has bad ideas, and might potentially at some future point uh, lead to, to some kind of harm, the response to that kind of speech is not not suppression, but more speech. Answer it back. Refute it. Criticize the speakers. And the term that lawyers often use is counter speech. Now, you have no legal 
obligation to raise your voice against ideas that you detest. But I argue that we all have a moral obligation to do that, especially those of us who oppose censorship, and especially to come to the defense of people who are marginalized and vulnerable and potentially uh, psychically traumatized or even silenced by hateful speech. In Germany, there are laws that govern speech that wouldn't pass the smell test here in the United States. Uh, and but, you know, g- given Germany's history, we might understand the impulse to uh, want to put those kinds of laws in place. Now, you argue those laws uh, against certain kinds of speech have not prevented uh, anti-Semitic uh, speech. They haven't pre- pre- prevented uh, v- certain kinds of violence that have been inspired by speech. Um, but you also say, so you say that these laws are at best counterproductive, at best ineffective, but where do we see examples of where these laws have become actively counterproductive? So Germany is as good an example as any, and it's one that is certainly powerful given the Nazi history, powerful to every student of history and powerful to me as an individual because my father was a victim of Nazism. He was a Holocaust survivor, but just you know, barely. He uh, was extremely ill as a result of forced labor in the Buchenwald concentration camp. And my life was almost almost snuffed out because he was scheduled to be sterilized the day after he happened to be liberated by members of the American military. So I certainly loathe the Nazis. And if I believed that suppressing their speech would have been a way to uh, prevent genocide, I would probably be in favor of it. But uh, both during the Weimar Republic, while the Nazis rose to power, and in modern Germany, there have been very strict hate speech laws that have suppressed even criticism of Israeli government policies, even historic debates about particular aspects of the Holocaust, um, even politicians making statements that are seen as being uh, discriminatory against immigrants. Uh, So, you know, on the one hand, you have enormous suppression of what in the United States would be considered essential, robust discussion in a democratic republic. But on the other hand, you still have enormous violence, not only against Jews, but also against immigrants and uh, Muslims and uh, other minority groups. And you also have the rise of an explicitly racist party, the AFD party, in the November 2017 presidential election, getting almost 13 percent of the vote. So clearly, the anti-hate speech laws have not been effective. They have been counterproductive in Germany and, and other countries, according to critics in those countries themselves, by disproportionately silencing and punishing speech by members of the very minority groups that were intended to be protected by the speech by the by the anti-hate speech laws so in France for example uh, within the last year or two the head of a an LGBT rights organization was criminally convicted 
Fortunately, she wasn't sentenced to prison, but she was required to pay a very steep fine, $2,800 in uh, U.S. value, because she called the head of an anti-gay rights organization a homophobe, and that was deemed to be hate speech. Uh, Glenn Greenwald wrote a column in The Guardian last fall uh, in the aftermath of Charlottesville when a lot of American liberals and progressives were saying, oh, well, maybe we ought to adopt some hate speech laws of the European style to deal with the alt-right. And he said, yeah, you know, liberals may think that these laws are going to be enforced against speech that they dislike, Islamophobic and racist and misogynist and so forth. And sometimes those laws are enforced that way, but they are often enforced against liberal ideas themselves. So um, anybody who criticizes, I think I said this earlier, any any particular policies of the Israeli government uh, has been fined, including... In France, the uh, Le Monde newspaper, which is a mainstream newspaper similar to the New York Times in this country, again, not for saying anything remotely anti—well, I shouldn't say that. They obviously think it is sufficiently anti-Semitic to criticize a particular policy of the Israeli government that that was uh, subject to a criminal penalty as well. For ideological groups— the people who are most vociferous about defending free speech, um, it kind of changes with the times or can change with the times. And uh, for a lot of people who, uh, for like the right, there are a lot of right wingers who are arguing about free speech right now, saying, well, we, we have to defend free speech. In some ways, it seems to be. Uh, in many ways, like a defensive crouch, which is we won't get our ideas out if we don't uh, defend this principle here and now. Uh, Bob Bauer, who was uh, an attorney in the Obama White House, you know, he says our uh, defense of free speech should not turn on whether or not we think the right ideas ultimately are going to win. And that that idea has really stuck with me and it, it's made me think more carefully, uh, you know, why do I defend free speech? Is it that I, I think that my ideas might be under attack if I don't? Or is it because I th- or is it because I think that um, I just think that's a good policy? And so so can can you help help us understand there are some people who support free speech uh not just for themselves, but for people that they say, well, look, we all agree on this idea here, so we need to defend the expression of this idea, not for ideas generally. Philosophers, political scientists, lawyers, civil libertarians, libertarians, uh, many of us have for eons debated what is the purpose of protecting freedom of speech? What is the rationale or the justification for protecting freedom of speech? And uh, many different theories have been advanced. I like the formulation of Justice Louis Brandeis, one of the very first U.S. Supreme Court justices to defend the robust concept of freedom, even for the thought that that we hate, 
Uh, originally, he did so back in the beginning of the 20th century in dissenting opinions, but in the middle of the 20th century, those dissents were embraced by the Supreme Court as the majority opinion. And interestingly enough, now the U.S. Supreme Court, despite its enormous fragmentation on most constitutional law and civil liberties issues, has essentially been unanimous all the way from the extreme left to the extreme right on the court, the justices agreeing that government should not have the power to pick and choose uh, certain ideas as being so beyond the pale or so hateful or so unpopular that they should not be protected. And I think that Brandeis really said it well when he said that we value freedom of speech both as an end and as a means. And I think you touched on those two different facets, Caleb. So as a means, yes, we do believe that it is the only means that can possibly help us evaluate truth. It doesn't mean that, you know, the marketplace of ideas is inevitably, certainly not immediately going to arrive at the truth. But if we don't have freedom of speech, I think it's pretty clear that we will never arrive at truth or enhance our understanding. Um, It's also a means toward fulfilling uh, the promise of democracy, of our democratic republic. To quote the opening words of the Constitution, we the people are the governors. And how can we possibly fulfill that responsibility unless we have sufficiently robust freedom of speech that we can debate with each other vigorously, that we can um, criticize government officials and government policies vigorously. And uh, we can't do that consistent with allowing those who are accountable to us to punish speech because it is offensive or hateful. In too many other countries, we see quite predictably that that power is used to suppress government critics and dissidents. Now, in terms of free speech as being an end as well as a means, it is an essential aspect of individual autonomy. Justice Kennedy said it very well in an opinion uh, not too long ago when he said, freedom of speech is the beginning of freedom of thought. How can we formulate and articulate and refine our own ideas uh, without freedom of speech. The court has also said that uh, speech, freedom of speech, is essential to express ineffable emotions as well as formulated rational ideas. So uh, it has many, many values, and that is a reason why uh, speech, including expressive conduct, deservedly receives special protection that non-expressive conduct does not receive. Uh, your your commenter, uh, Michael Seidman, he commented on your book at the, the forum that we held at the Cato Institute. He says that, uh, you know, many liber- civil libertarians rest too much on the First Amendment, that they appeal to the First Amendment and appeal less to the principle 
that uh, that are trying to def- defend. The, I mean, the, obviously, the principles that the First Amendment enshrines. So beyond constitutional law, you know, why should someone who really doesn't care one way or another be very interested in defending free speech? Somebody who's who's not going to be not going to be swayed by an appeal to this very old document that some of us take very seriously and others don't. And I defend free speech as a concept and look at the First Amendment as a tool for protecting that concept in certain contexts. Uh, But in other contexts, the First Amendment doesn't help, and yet I still believe in freedom of speech. So many people are very surprised to learn that the First Amendment, along with most constitutional rights, only limits government power. It does not secure any protection against violation of what we might think of as free speech off by private sector institutions or entities. So if you go to a private university rather than a state university, you have no First Amendment rights. If you work for a private sector employer rather than the government, you have no First Amendment rights. But many of us, including yours truly, believe that you still should have free speech rights. So we would then look for other legal tools or other avenues for protecting freedom of speech, including uh, many private universities um, make promises to people who are applying to them or enrolling in them that we voluntarily adhere to standards of freedom of speech and academic freedom because we believe it's essential for the education process and for the search for truth, which is especially important on a university campus. So uh, I make very clear in my book, Caleb, that I am making the case for free speech. It's really important for me to say that because I am making this appeal to people in other countries that do not have a First Amendment and to the contrary, which have a legal system under which laws restricting hate speech would be completely permissible as a legal matter. And what's so interesting to me, and I I quote them extensively in my book, are human rights activists in so many other countries, including Germany, which we talked about earlier, who are saying, we think that our country should move more in the direction of where the law is in the United States, not because of legal constraints in our countries, but because we think that is more consistent with human rights and not only because of the importance of individual liberty, not only because of the importance of, you know, robust freedom of speech if we're going to have a meaningful democracy uh, with dissent and, and power residing in the people more than in government officials, but also because freedom of speech is the most effective way to advance goals of equality and dignity and civility and societal harmony, diversity, inclusivity, all of the values that are usually advanced as a supposed rationale for censoring hate speech. And when I say supposed rationale, I'm not at all questioning the good faith of advocates of suppressing what's constitutionally protected 
hate speech in this country. I think they really do hope, at least, and probably believe that those censorship laws would help further their worthy goals, which is why the book stresses so strongly that that hope really is not justified when you see the actual enforcement record of hate speech laws around the world and and in the United States before the Supreme Court began to strongly protect the First Amendment rights. So Facebook has shut down many pages. Uh, GoDaddy recently rescinded the domain name altright.com for uh, actively promoting uh, violence against uh, certain minorities. Twitter, YouTube, uh, and other large-scale platforms have been shutting down accounts that have uh, advanced uh, ideas that some people consider to be odious. We know that the Constitution does not constrain any of these firms, but as a matter of trying to be as inclusive as possible and at the same time uh, continue to make a profit, which of course all these companies are uh, actively engaged in their profit-making enterprises that are not um, – their their goal is not to safeguard uh, the uh, ability of certain groups to uh, communicate freely. So how tolerant do you think companies like this ought to be? And what do you consider to be the important uh, aspects that they ought to be thinking about when they make those kinds of decisions? I argue in my book, and I quote, is specifically experts on the internet world, which I don't include myself in that group, but uh, experts agree with me that for policy reasons, private sector companies that wield so much power over speech, which are essentially functioning as the public square in contemporary society, that they ought to exercise that power in a way that respects the fundamental viewpoint neutrality principle that is reflected in the First Amendment, and that to deal with hateful ideas or any other expression that has negative impacts or potential negative impacts, the best and most effective response is through counter speech, not through censorship. And let me just give one of the reasons why, Caleb, the inevitable subjectivity that is required to enforce any anti-hate speech standard. Look, the concept of hate, it's an emotion. There is no possible way of defining it sufficiently clearly or sufficiently narrowly. It has been tried and tried and tried. I read every hate speech law in the world. I have read every hate speech law that's been proposed. I challenge readers to try to come up with their own language. It's impossible. Uh, no two people can agree. And in fact, what one person considers to be hate speech, somebody else considers to be very important, even loving speech. Uh, so, you know, just let me give you a couple examples of how the, the term has been 
been slung around in U.S. political debates recently. Uh, Many people consider Black Lives Matter advocacy to be loving and supportive of human dignity and equality and other positive values. But Black Lives Matter advocacy has been attacked by many powerful politicians and others as hate speech. The Southern Poverty Law Center has been lobbied to treat Black Lives Matter as a hate group. Conversely, some people argue that Blue Lives Matter is hate speech. Some people have argued, and there have been attempts on campus to punish and censor uh, all lives matter. Uh, When you get into the area of religion, it becomes even more complicated because uh, we have repeatedly seen in this country, as well as Europe, attacks on certain deeply held religious viewpoints as hate speech. You know, so certain uh, traditional Christian and Muslim doctrines that um, denounce or condemn as as sinful uh, LGBT sexuality and 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 surely the motive in 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 voicing those religious doctrines is not hateful. It's compassion. It's trying to prevent somebody from being condemned to hell. And yet I can understand why it could be perceived as as hateful or discriminatory by an LGBT person. And yet when they criticize the religious expression, then they're accused by some people of engaging in anti-religious hate speech. So when we take these inherently vague concepts and entrust it to a private sector company to make the distinction between what hate speech will be not allowed on our site and what will be allowed, it's the results are as arbitrary and discriminatory as when the government enforces those inherently uh, subjective criteria. So at you know it, it gives unfettered discretion to whoever has the enforcement power. Uh, my book recounts that for a, a number of years now, very large coalitions of civil rights and civil liberties organizations have complained to Facebook, as an example, that it is discriminatorily enforcing its hate speech uh, rules to uh, disproportionately take down and block expression that is advocating justice within the criminal justice system that's advocating racial justice so that Black Lives Matter protests or protests against police abuse, police killings have been taken down and punished as hate speech. Pipeline protests, other advocates for social justice have been taken down as hate speech. And something that you alluded to earlier, Caleb, some critics say that, well, the motivation of faith Facebook and these other private sector companies is not only to make money, but in order to do that, uh, to please certain powerful government officials. So not surprisingly, there is at least subconsciously and, and perhaps well consciously a desire to in favor of protecting speech by the government and not protecting speech by those who criticize the government. One last question here. Uh, This relates to college campuses. I have read so much about the uh, much-hailed 
free speech crisis on college campuses. There are people who are on at least three sides of this issue. Uh, One group uh, tends to say, this is a serious problem. Young people today do not value free speech the way their parents did or or, uh, older people have traditionally in the past. Other people say, well, if you look at the data more closely, there actually isn't a problem with uh, free speech on campus. And then there's still a third group that uh, they say, well, you know, you know, whether or not it's it's it may be real, but it's not very substantial. What having observed what you have, uh, and in writing this book about dealing with hate speech, which is what a lot of these groups on campus are trying to prevent on their campuses, do you do you feel like that is a problem? I think I have a fourth perspective to add to your array, which is that there is a serious problem on campus and in the public sphere generally. And it is one that has always existed throughout my entire adult lifetime, which is many decades now. Every public opinion survey consistently shows that the public essentially supports free speech in the abstract, right? Nobody says, I support censorship, but, and there's a big but there, everybody wants to make at least one exception for the speech that they uniquely consider to be the most dangerous, the most offensive. And I think that whole attitude was best summarized by the title of a book by Nat Hentoff, who I was a friend of mine and an ACLU leader, and I know closely affiliated with the Cato Institute as well. And the title of his book was Freedom of Speech for Me, but Not for The Subtitle, How the Left and Right Relentlessly Censor Each Other. So to take uh, some of the recent surveys about college campuses, uh, they show that a substantial majority of college students say they support free speech, but a substantial majority think that hate speech, whatever that means to them, should not be protected. Uh, But it's not that different from the survey results that we've gotten uh, across the decades and among all age groups. And, And that is precisely why I wrote my book, Caleb, as you indicate, because I do believe that if people understood two points, they would be much more supportive of freedom of speech for hate speech, for the idea that we hate. And those two points are this. Number one, that censoring hate speech is not going to accomplish the wonderful goals that you are advocating, which I also support, individual equality and dignity, inclusivity and diversity, and societal harmony. In fact, if we look at how the laws actually operate, uh, we see that they are at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive, point number one. Point number two, counter speech, raising your voices, using your First Amendment and free speech rights to 
protest and demonstrate and organize and advocate and lobby and petition the government, other non-sensorial measures such as enforcing anti-discrimination laws, punishing hateful and discriminatory crimes, these measures are really successful. No, of course we haven't reached the nirvana of liberty and justice for all, but we are infinitely closer to it than we were at certainly when the country was founded, certainly when the ACLU was founded, certainly at the beginning of the civil rights movement. And how have we made all of that progress? We've made it, despite the absence of censorship in this country, to the contrary, we've made it because of the absence of censorship. It is no coincidence that the Supreme Court decisions that strongly enforced freedom of speech were all forged in the crucible of the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement, because before those decisions, uh, laws that punished unpopular speech, speech that was feared to be dangerous or subversive and hated, uh, those laws were enforced to suppress the messages of the civil rights movement. Nadine Strawson is the former head of the National ACLU. She is the author of Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.